Hey, thanks for listening to the NIL Show, a Campus Inc. production. You can catch us on YouTube, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and on a campus near you. If you're out there interested in being a guest or having an NIL store for your campus merch, find us on any social channel or email. This is what we love about college sports is it, it creates more opportunities for you know, underprivileged communities. It creates more opportunities for you know, females and minorities to not only get an education, but also learn about how to build their brand and you know, leverage the opportunity that they have into something bigger. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is episode three, season two of the NIL show. I'm Adam Cook here with Sean Ellenby and a very special guest today, Bill Carter. Really looking forward to this conversation. Bill has a wealth of experience across sports marketing, across college athletics, representation, brand deals, has more recently turned into, uh, you stay away from the term advocate and try to lean more towards NIL analysts. Is that right, Bill? I try to use that. That that, that phrase is probably not going to catch on anytime soon, <laughs> nor is the overused term of expert. Uh, yes, I yeah. definitely don't use that uh, since I, apparently everybody's an expert. Expert um, with six months of experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. At most Expert. three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, Bill, I guess you... in that sense, we are all experts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bill, you have a, a really fascinating background of kind of how you came to NIL. I'll do just kind of a, a there's no way I'm going to do this justice, but just a brief intro to a little bit of your background. You spent 20 years building Fuse Marketing. You were named to the Sports Business Journal 40 Under 40. Grew that company to close to 100 employees with clients like Pepsi, Gatorade, Amazon, TikTok. Ended up leaving that company, from what I understand, on, on wonderful terms and have started NIL Research Poll, which you know you now serve as a consultant to universities, an analyst for the market, as well as a resource for uh, student athletes. Um, in addition, you are a lecturer at University of Vermont. So as much as we can say it with three years of experience, uh, definitely an expert in the space. Well, Adam, I appreciate that introduction. I appreciate, you know, a little bit of background. I mean, I joke about the expertise stuff. I mean, I don't mean to downplay a couple of things, though. I mean, I it's one of the reasons that, that I was, you know, really happy when I got the invitation to, the, to speak with the two of you, which is I really... I am an advocate for entrepreneurship mm. and I love small businesses. I love smart, creative, innovative people that are trying to develop new businesses or apply businesses to new ecosystems. And, um, and so, so I really appreciate what, what you guys do. I think in terms of expertise, I sort of make fun of it, but at the same time, I do have a lot of respect and, and, and I've tried to do this myself, which is look to people that have a lot of experience in ancillary businesses or ancillary industries where it's logical that what they worked on may, can apply to NIL. And, and I try to learn a lot from those people uh, because while the fact that you know we might call NIL this new ecosystem, this new industry, everything about it is not new. And I try to take as many shortcuts as I can by learning from people that were doing very similar things for the last 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, you talk, I can't remember exactly who posted, but I just saw there's a, a quote from Kobe Bryant where he says, look, if you want to be great, don't look at what I did, just look at how I did it. 
Because that's what I, right. you know, I take examples from other industries, other leaders, other people who do things really well. And I just want to copy how I do that. So yeah, I, I think that's great advice for, for our listeners. And I'm sure there's almost none of them, but for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the NIL report, give us just a, a little bit of a, a background of kind of how that started and what that is. Yeah. So or, as I'm you sorry, mentioned, NIL research poll, excuse me. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So my background was as a founder of a, a sports agency called Fuse. And for 23 or 24 years, uh, my two partners and I operated that business. And at the end of 2019, two of us, myself and Brett Smith, sold our interest to our other longtime uh, partner, whose name is Issa Salabini, who's still operating that business successfully. And at the end of 2019, when all that was happening, and I knew uh, that I wanted to really do education and consulting in the NIL space, that I was going to take what I had learned through a couple of decades being on the brand side of really professional athlete marketing deals. I thought the first thing that I needed to do was to develop a research tool that I didn't want to be, you know, again, going back, I guess, to sort of making fun a little bit of experts and, and so forth. I didn't want to only be in the game of waving my hand and saying, listen to me, listen to my opinion. I wanted to be able to point to data that was coming directly from student athletes. But again, like this was not a brilliant idea. <laughs> this was something I had done at Fuse many, many times over uh, a couple of decades. That's how you, you know, that kind of consumer research is what you often need to present to a Fortune 500 brand when you're pitching a campaign or identifying an athlete that you think that that brand ought to sponsor and so forth. So I thought that that was going to be an important component. I knew uh, uh, more or less how to package that and put it together. I certainly needed some help from the, the software and social media standpoint in terms of how to recruit those student athletes, how to uh, at scale reach out to them and, and bring them into or invite them in rather into the, uh, in, into the pool and into that ecosystem to provide feedback on a monthly basis. So I spent about six months just doing that. I thought it was also important that there were going to be two, I think, important benchmarks in terms of the size of that poll. One was to get to a thousand student athletes and just a little peek, you know, behind the curtain for a second. And you guys may know this. There's nothing magical about polling a thousand people in this country. In fact, there's some great polls, and we'll unfortunately experience them next year with the presidential campaigns. You can get great polling data in this country uh, with 330 million people in it, doing a poll of 300 people. If, you're, if you've identified the right group to, to do those surveys with. So I think the optics of having a thousand people do a poll just feels better to people that you don't have the opportunity to have this explanation with, this discussion with. So first I got to a thousand, then I got to 5,000 and that's where the poll stands today. I've got a 5,000, they're active in the system and I'm right around a thousand high school prospects not just high school athletes, but those who have raised their hand and tell me that they intend to play at the next level. 
Part of it is really, again, a little peek behind the curtain. Part of it is really just a content marketing play for me. I want something to talk about that I think is of value and it's not just my opinion. So that allows me to do that. And then I would say a couple of times a month, I'll either do uh, additional surveys or look back at previous survey data. So it is, it's a valuable tool. For I love it personally. I, I think it's tremendous in this space. We see it all the time where I think everybody just has preconceived notions on NIL and uh, make assumptions on certain things. And actually that proves maybe some things people were thinking were so, so valuable. Is there, is there a recent poll that you, or one that you're working on currently that you're trying, that, that you could share? So Sean, really good question. I, I, um, what I tend to do is when I find something that I think is counterintuitive or counter, at least to the narrative uh, around yep. a lot of NIL more than once in terms of surveying it, because I want to make sure that I'm right, not I'm right, but make sure that the uh, data is is accurate. And and also because, you know, I, I, I'm always reminded, you know, we're, we're sort of in, I guess, consumer businesses, right? And a particular topic or something that you're working on, they're not thinking of you, right? I mean, we have to always remember, they're not thinking of you ever. And, and unless you keep representing it, um, they're going to forget maybe the thing you told them that they even liked two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I think one of the counterintuitive data points that I've surveyed in the last six months and again, three months, and then again, about two weeks ago, is this idea that somehow NIL is going to create friction and jealousy in the locker room. And so now I don't know who came up with that. I mean, I can guess because <laughs> it, was, it was very much... It was very much part of the narrative from coaches who didn't want NIL to happen, administrators who didn't want NIL to happen. It happened at the the, the national level and in terms of high school sports. It certainly happened in the NCAA. It was part of like probably every speaking points document for those that were trying to knock down NIL. Friction in the locker room, jealousy, it's going to wreck the team. And that has, that is like, and almost entirely been, I mean, for, in my opinion, been debunked at this point. Just about every time that I've surveyed anything related to the topic, I'll never see more than five, eight percent of student athletes who say that they've ever seen an issue, that it's ever been a topic of discussion. Well, and newsflash, it's been you know, a while since I've been in the locker room and it gets more and more every year, but uh, there is friction in locker rooms. That's it. It's a highly competitive environment. It's it's not about avoiding or eliminating friction. Friction creates healthy competition. It's about managing it. And, and that's fine. There's a lot of really interesting things. You know, you talk a lot about messaging and who's saying what and how they're saying it. Somebody who has such a broad range of experience, I want to ask a, a question around, you know, there's a lot of legislation getting thrown around. There's a lot of conversations happening on Capitol Hill. There's a lot of hearings going on that, you know, supposedly are bringing in like the best athlete representation to those conversations. Simultaneously, we're still seeing, you know, Princeton just the other day levied a, a lawsuit saying, hey, we are not being represented well. So from your experience or your, your perspective, 
why are we getting one side of, hey, this legislation is going to be great for student athletes. Hey, we are we are going to Capitol Hill to fight for student athletes. But then on the backside, you have this huge number of student athletes that are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We are not involved in this conversation. Where do you think the like disparity is in that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's again, Adam, that's a great question. I'll try to answer this one. I'll try to make my answer a little bit shorter than my first two. And also, uh, I'll try to do it in a way that's sort of fair, I guess, to both sides and, and not be an advocate for either side. But I will be honest with you. I, I'm not actually not necessarily in favor of federal legislation. In other words, I don't think it's actually a game changer. There are lots of other places that regulation is already happening. Now, I'm not going to be somebody who is anti-federal legislation. That's silly. Uh, but, I, but I will say that I don't think it's nearly the, you know, the, the silver bullet that, that people are pretending, in my opinion, pretending it, it, it could be. So that's my opinion, but I still think I can talk about it very fairly. I think that state legislators, lobbyists, senators, congressmen, they, they know how the game is played. And they very well know that they'll never pull federal legislation over the finish line by talking about rules, regulations, policies, uh, essentially keeping everybody in line, right? By the way, that's a losing argument because the optics of it are terrible any, in any case, they're particularly terrible when you're talking about the rights of young people. And they're even worse when you're talking about the rights of young people that 70 plus percent of Americans think should have been in place prior to the summer of 2021. And so the messaging that those who are trying to pass federal legislation are using is that they're trying to position this federal legislation as pro-student athlete, as protecting student athletes. And that may be true in some instances, but I think there are many of us who believe that at the end of the day, it's just another set of rules, right? And the NCAA and others, you know, used their power and rules to keep a lot of this from happening for decades. I'm not sure we need to go back to any version of those rules. And you've been, Bill, you've been traveling to campuses. Uh, you've been meeting with athletes. You've been meeting with administrators. But when you're talking to athletes, what do you find is important to them in all of this? Yeah, yeah. Practically none of this. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like it's a, and I, I make that joke. It is I do think it's actually important. Right. It is important for um, the three of us and others to be in tune with things that maybe the student athletes aren't thinking about all day because it will uh, it will ultimately affect them and it will affect student athletes into the future. But it is absolutely not what they're thinking about. They are not thinking about federal legislation or state legislation or even NCAA rules, right? What like my belief is, and I'm thinking about, you know, I was at, I was at um, University of Oklahoma this past weekend and speaking to their student athletes on Sunday night. Not the best time to try to get the athlete, uh, athletes' attention, <laughs> but they were phenomenal. I, I, I really was so impressed with the student athletes there. And and the questions I was getting were about, okay, 
I've got this opportunity at this great institution and they're giving, and they've got a great brand and all that's really helpful for me as a student athlete, but I've got to take action. I've got to act as an entrepreneur. So what do I need to be doing to open more doors for myself? That's, that is one of the questions I get most frequently. So again, at a great place like Oklahoma or Alabama, where I was a couple of weeks ago, where they've got facilities, they've got tools, they've got staff, they've got everything uh, that they put in place to support the student athlete. But still there's this gymnast, I'm thinking of a gymnast in particular, raises his hand and says, I want to do more. I know it's my responsibility. So what are the things I need to do? to go knock on more doors within 90 miles of Norman, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. One of your most recent surveys talks about engagement rates of athletes versus like traditional influencers, right? And I think we, we those of us who, who work in and around sports understand that just by the nature of the machine behind, you know, capital A athletics, the reach is gonna be bigger than, you know, a, a solo influencer. I think your poll quoted like five and a half percent bigger reach or, or, or more effectiveness. What we run into a lot is, you know, we'll go into schools and have a conversation with them and, you know, we'll talk about what our model is and how we can have the breadth of athletes engaged in this process. They say, well, you know, our athletes aren't really interested in it. And, you know, we dig a little deeper and a lot of times it's like, well, it's not that they're not interested in it. It's that the ecosystem you've created for them to participate in is one that they're not interested in. And I think traditionally, a lot of the ways that this, you know, and you're intimately familiar with this, this brand engagement and how the schools interact with, you know, marketing and opportunities is really hyper brand focused, right? And how do we get the corporate sponsors? How do we get the corporate brands to have more visibility with the institutional brand? And that's shifting pretty significantly to how do we actually allow the athletes to individually access those opportunities with the brands themselves, but that also creates some tension, right? Who's, who's getting the reach, who's getting the influence, who's controlling that interaction. When you go in and talk with institutions, how do you get them to understand like, Hey, this is actually a good thing. It may feel like you're removing yourself a bit from, you know, controlling that relationship with the bigger brand, but this is actually a positive thing for, you know, your institutional brand inviting the athletes into that process. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's so complicated because in defense of institutions, one of their fears has, has largely come true, which is that they were fearful. I think you guys know what I'm going to say. They were fearful that NIL in whatever form it was going to be, even pre collectives, but certainly now with collectives, that NIL was going to skim something off the top from their donor base, and it was going to take attention around away from the institutions or the institution's representatives as they were trying to do go do corporate deals. Mm-hmm. And in fairness to them, I thought that they reacted pretty well to it. You know, they, they said, okay, well, let's see, maybe we're wrong. Right. And as it turns out now, I think two years in, I think that they were largely right. And now they're trying to sort of clean up a little bit of that mess. And they're saying, okay, well, 
you know, my fundraising team for the institution, you know, we have donors we need to go after. My my donor, my athletic department fundraisers, they've got donors and they've got corporate brands that they've already developed relationships with or they intend to. And NIL is uh, does make it murkier. Now, I will say, Adam, one thing I, I think I try to use when it comes to having this discussion with somebody in the athletic department is that they are a little bit different targets, right? Like the lacrosse player, the gymnast, the field hockey player, who's, who are trying to be entrepreneurs, they are entrepreneurs and they're, they're hustling and they're knocking on doors in their college town and they're doing deals. If the institution's athletic fundraisers are afraid of that, I, I got I got something to tell you. You don't have the right people in place because they're they're not because those deals financially are small, as you guys know, and they're 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 not overly sophisticated, right? It's the the local brand using that level of athlete as a student athlete social media influencer mainly, and so the. The, the fear of that, I think, is not warranted because the, the institution ought to be coming in with a much bigger plan, much bigger strategy, much bigger vision of how they're going to activate with that brand. So I think, you know, if, if you want to be fearful on the institution side, if you want to be fearful, well, then just look at your collective. Th that that could be a problem for you and look at the how you're involving or not involving you know football women's basketball men's basketball in what you're doing as you're pitching uh, for your sponsor dollars um, that all of that can be a threat but i think all of that can also be managed you answered part of my my follow-up in in your answer which is great of you know, there's, there's obviously two different buckets that we're talking about here. You know, when we, we look at, you know, power five programs at, you know, the best or the football men's and women's basketball level, that's a totally different conversation than the Olympic sport conversation. And, you know, I played men's volleyball in college. I always joke around, like I was nobody to worry about taking dollars away from an athletics department, but you know, I think creating an ecosystem for those athletes to still thrive is really important. And, in, in my personal opinion, should align with the foundational goal of your institution, right? We want to create a system for athletes to be successful in developing who they are as people and professionals. So I, I love what you talked about there is that there's really two issues at play and you need to be looking at them both, but looking at them with different strategies. And then, you know, you, you touched on the next thing is that what, what could really be the problem is collectives, right? And we saw this super early on i think usc was was talking a lot about how you know they had a student-led collective that they didn't feel comfortable with because they're like well they're not associated with us what if they do something that puts us into you know hot water that we can't control and you know i think the second thing most recently we saw you know spartan dogs for life um everybody's talking about that how they're you know changing their strategy probably backing out of some payments and commitments that they had made previously to student athletes and seemingly the institution is a little bit caught with their hands tied 
because they have no recourse to impact that. How, how, you know, if you could look into a crystal ball, how do you, how do you foresee this kind of shaking out in the next couple of years? Like this is obviously going to have big impacts on strategy and, you know, bylaws and things like that. Yeah. Oh man. I, there's so much there. I'm not sure what I want to attack first. I guess I'll go, I'll go co-op <laughs> collectives first. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty agnostic when it comes to collectives. I mean, it's just like, I don't, I, I say to people like, you got to stop complaining about collectives. Like that's like <laughs> me complaining that the, you know, speed limit on my streets, 25 miles an hour. It's just, it's just <laughs> it is what it is. So like, just, I don't know. I don't understand the point of complaining about it. Right. Yeah. So I do like the approach that, that I think a lot of people are beginning to take, which is, I do like the approach of like, okay, it's a fact. Now, how are we going to integrate them into the ecosystem? Maybe not the university, but how are we going to integrate them into the the, the overall ecosystem so that they can achieve what they want to achieve, which is supporting the student athletes at the university that they support. And, and they can also do so within regulations, within a, within a, you know, certain boundary of ethics and fairness and, and not complicate things. And so I actually, I thought, you know, one of the maybe underreported, but, but really positive things that happened you know, I guess, you know, close to a year ago now was when the NCAA came out and said, actually, we've sort of shifted a little bit, though they left that part out of the equation, but they did, they did. And they said, we actually, we want these collectives to be engaged with the athletic departments that they are supposed, that they are supporting. In other words, we want there to be communication. And, and I think they took the cue from some powerful power five athletic directors that had that had said to the NCAA guys, you don't want to leave the collectives out here on an island. They don't know the rules. And even if they're trying to behave ethically, it's going to be problematic. Let us engage with them because the closer that they are to the formal systems, the more likely it is that we're all going to be rowing in the same direction. So I think that, I think that is the solution for collectives, if you think there's a problem, is to not alienate them, not to push them away, but to bring them closer. Now, now there's a limit to that. And by the way, now I'm going off on a tangent, but I got to do it for a second. I, I think there is already a gigantic Title IX problem. Now, I'm in the minority right now. I... I know I'm in the minority. I talk to lawyers who say, you're wrong. You're wrong. We don't have a Title IX problem because the collectives are not part of the university. And to that, I say, okay, good luck with that. You'll be tested. You'll be tested in court. And my guess is that a lot of judges and juries are going to say, explain to me how you are not within the same ecosystem, not supporting the same university, but you, because you have a different LLC, don't need to follow the same rules. I, I just don't believe it's going to fly in the long run. I think we've got a big Title IX problem. By the way, I raise that in, in sort of conflict with myself, because here I am, I'm saying to you, let's bring collectives under the tent so that they can row in the same direction of their athletic department. And then the other hand, I'm also telling you, 
but we've got to solve the Title IX thing because it's a big problem. And there's all sorts of data out there that supports the fact that, you know, 80 plus percent of collective deals are going to male athletes. Well, that's a that's a Title IX issue, mm -hmm. right? It, it can't it can't happen. And so and, and other things. So I, I think that's I guess that's the the piece of what you're describing that I would probably approach first. No, and I, you know, I think that's great. I, I, I think, you know, when we talk about legislation, when we talk about, you know, strategy, when we talk about the future of this, I agree with you. That's a huge piece that I think people are missing is there, there is legislation that's already in place about how to approach some of these opportunities and things. And, you know, it's, it's the, the collective conversation is, is one thing, but it also is incredible to me to watch this space mature and you've got, you know, just, just in our space, as it relates to merchandise and apparel, you know, you have direct institutional partners who have official contracts and have exclusivity tied up in a lot of things. And they just are straight up saying, Nope, we're not going to touch women's sports. Nope. We're not going to do anything for women's volleyball. And to me, I'm like, if you are an institution that should be blaring alarms for you if you have entered right. into an agreement with somebody an exclusive agreement and they are telling you we're not going to do that you have a a a legal responsibility to create opportunities and beyond the legal responsibility isn't that just what you should be doing anyway <laughs> like this is what we love about college sports is it it creates more opportunities for you know, underprivileged communities, it creates more opportunities for, you know, females and minorities to not only get an education, but also learn about how to build their brand and, you know, leverage the opportunity that they have into something bigger. Um, so I, I, I love that, that you talked an analyst, you know, I think it's hard to hard to argue with saying, you know, you're in the minority when you have all the data there and all those conversations. So I appreciate that perspective. It's interesting. You, you use the phrase alarm or sounding the alarm. I, I, it's interesting to me, I guess we shouldn't be shocked, but I guess I, I am, I'm naive, I guess. Um, I think that there are alarms going off right now that are being ignored, major alarms. One is around title nine. And like you, who, who a former volleyball player, I was also an Olympic sport athlete. I played lacrosse in college. And um, so I'll pick on lacrosse for a second. Lacrosse has never been more popular, not at the high school level, not at the college level. The program, the pro game has some impact on that. The sport feels like it's riding high. And again, I know I'm in the minority when I say this, guys. You're in an absolute danger zone right now because of what's happening in and around college sports, around issues of revenue sharing, of athletes becoming employees. Again, no, none of which I have a problem with. I think right. these are in a, this is just where we're going. This is just where we're going to end up. But sports like lacrosse, expensive big rosters, 50 plus now, when I played the rosters were like 30. Uh, now they're over 50 or around 50 at most schools. Expensive, there's travel, all these things. If college sports continues to go in a certain direction, again, around revenue sharing and, and uh, student athletes becoming employees, Olympic sports will be cut. Yep. We don't know which ones. We can't say for sure, 
but there is almost no solution that balances revenue sharing and student athletes as employees and does not include cutting Olympic sports. And if you have to cut Olympic sports, can you cut Olympics women's sports? Probably not because of the football factor. Not, and I don't mean the revenue generation, I mean Roster, because of the numbers, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you have to cut uh, men's sports. If you're gonna cut men's sports, are you gonna look for small rosters, wrestling, men's swimming? Yeah, you might go there, which is really terrible, but you're never gonna achieve the numbers that you need to achieve. Where do you go? You go to sports like lacrosse. So again, when it comes to sounding alarms, these are the things that if I were a governing body, if I were a head coach in one of these sports, I would be working right now to figure out what we're gonna do when we, when we're down to, you know, not being an NCAA sanctioned sport or cut from, you know, visible universities, there needs to be a plan. And, and there's definitely not a plan for any of that right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the irony of, of, of all of that is, you know, when this legislation first shifted, you know, it was, oh my gosh, this is going to ruin college sports. We have obviously seen that not be true, right? Greater parity than ever before, greater eyes on sports than ever before, greater right. engagement than ever before. But, and I don't think this is rocket science. I think there are a lot of people who are close to athletics that see this as the inevitability of what's actually going to cause the problems is, you know, the, the direction we're trying to solve this is going to start to really quickly erode away the foundations of the rest of it. It's, it's bound to be an interesting next three to five years for sure. Bill, I have one final question for you. One that we ask all our guests that I think is probably the most important question. Bill Carter today, not, not a lacrosse star back in the day, Bill Carter today. <laughs> If you God, I, hope, land... I, I hope no former teammate sees that. <laughs> <laughs> if you could land your ideal NIL restaurant deal, what restaurant are you signing an NIL deal with today? Oh my gosh. I'm so conflicted. I mean, I know my answer, but I don't want to give it. <laughs> um, all right. Now, now I'm also going to be forced to come up with something a little bit more clever than, than your former guest. You know what I was thinking about the other day? And by the way, I don't know if they've done NIL deals. I know they're still in business, but sort of barely. When I was a kid, I grew up in Maryland. And when I was a kid, I used to go to Shakey's Pizza. You guys know what Shakey's is? Oh, yeah. Do you? They're, they're still out in California. I spent, spent a little bit over a decade in California. They're still out there. Okay. So they used to be like really a national brand. I mean, they weren't everywhere. everywhere. They were in pockets. But it was like great pizza. And for some reason, and John's really going to laugh at this because he doesn't know Shakey's, but now he's going to have to go on YouTube. And, and I'm from uh, Maryland too. <laughs> are you? Yeah, but I'm so from you're, Maryland. Never heard of it. You're, no, you're too young for this. But so <laughs> you would go in, which is the weirdest thing anybody's going to say to you today. You go in and the music was like banjos and piano, and it was constantly humming in the background. It makes no sense. I don't know like what was, like what the foundation of that was, but it, but I just remember that as a kid. And so, yeah, so so the NIL deal would be Shakey's Pizza. I love it. You you heard it here first. <laughs> Shakey's 
if you need to you need to boost up your uh, social engagement, give Bill a call. You know where to find him. Bill, I, I'm so grateful for the time, the conversation, the perspective. If you don't follow Bill um, on Twitter, uh, Bill, what's your what, what's your Twitter X handle? I, I, I am not active on Twitter. I'm really active, uh, very active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. You're, you're, you're one of our favorite follows on LinkedIn for sure. Um, required reading. Um, hit him up there. Keep an eye out for NIL research poll. I'm very grateful for the conversation again, Bill. We're looking forward to, to seeing what the, the next couple weeks come. Uh, what they bring. And uh, that has been another episode of the NIO show. I'm Adam. That's Sean. Special guest, Bill Carter. Thanks, everybody. Hi, everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Want to say real quickly, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any custom merchandise, youth jerseys, camp t-shirts, whatever it may be, you can always find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store. We're going to jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy.